Stephanie Martinez Rivera, and you are listening to the Joy Found Here podcast. I am obsessed with reminding my fellow mamas, queens, badass babes, ladies and girls that perfection is just a word, not a lifestyle. Multitasking is overrated. Comparison is a theft of happiness. And yes, you can put yourself first. Oh, and by the way, for optimum results, you should. I'm a New York girl from a small town, part-time badass, proud mama bear times three. I've seen 60 full turns of the sun. I've learned the importance of how kindness begins with you and your self-talk. Join us each week as we help you navigate both the messy and the magical season of this crazy ride called life. Real stories that remind us to reclaim your power. The sun does come out after the shitstorm. A good cry can be cleansing and... We really don't know who sits on top of the mountain of judgment. Sit back, plug in, fill up your cup. This is your time. Remember, you've always had the power. Welcome to Joy Found Here. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Joy Found Here podcast. I'm excited to talk to this woman today, Corby Mitleid. She is, are you ready for the list? And it it doesn't even touch everything, but she is a certified tarot master. I was fortunate to get a reading, which was wonderful. Past life specialist, psychic medium, channel, and an author. And that is what we are talking about today. The list will go on and on, and I am going to let Corby talk about herself, and then we are going to delve into the book. We don't have that much time, but when we're done, I know everyone's going to run order. You have to. It is amazing. So first, I want to say thank you and welcome, Corby. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking. Okay, so... Loaded question, and you can. I can right. only imagine what you're going to begin with. So, t- tell us about you. There's there's so much, and and this is one of uh, hopefully a few episodes to come. But tell okay. us about you and wherever you'd like to start. All right, we'll start with now. You heard about all the things that I get to do every day, and it's full time job, six days a week, fourteen hours a day. I read about a thousand people a year. I grew up outside Philly in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Uh, I now live in upstate New York in a little bungalow in the middle of a hayfield in a county that has 32,000 people and a bunch of cows and sheep. It's another planet. But when you do the kind of work I do, being able to look outside and not see your neighbors is really a good thing. My husband was a museum director for 23 years. He's now a retired professional historian. And we have three cats, two Maine Coons and a Ginger Ninja Rescue. That's now. Ninja. Okay. Yep. Yep. That is now. So I want to just dive into the book that is called Mm -hmm. Clean Out Your Life Closet. Yep. You had me at the name. 
I think every I think that has to resonate with everybody that they open that door to any closet. It's such a feeling of accomplishment when you do clean out a closet or a lot of times in my case, I will use cleaning out closets and drawers definitely as perhaps some procrastination because let me get this done first and then I can do the thing I really don't want to do. Yeah. What, where did it come from? It's a great self-help, self-development. Where did it even, the idea, because your story and your storytelling is wonderful. Thank you. Well, look, I will give 50 bucks cold cash to anybody in the audience who truly can raise their (laughs) hand and say, I've never read a self-help book. My first one I got when I was a young teenager in the sixties. And I the part of the book I remember was Judy has great hair. Judy has wonderful makeup and Judy has great clothes, very groovy, but everybody hates Judy because Judy's fat. That doesn't matter. And so this was a teen book, self-help saying, if you didn't toe the line, skinny as Twiggy, this, that, the other, no one would like you. And when you're 14 in 1969, you buy that. The way things are today, we are a culture that victimizes people. You're not an expert. You don't know. Go ask the experts, the Deepak Chopas, the Oprah Winfrey, anybody. So you go into Barnes and Noble and you're at the self-help shelves and you see a book with a cool cover and a sexy title. And maybe you read a couple of pages and wow, this looks good. But then you bring it home and you realize they're telling me that I can't eat food with leptin and I have to get up and do yoga at 4.30 in the morning. Are they nuts? <laughs> I live in Milwaukee. I have two preschool kids and I have a job to go to. So the book goes on the shelf. So I chose to write a book that doesn't purport to be your expert, but teaches you you're your own best expert. So my chapters, the book is about clarity, adaptability, simplicity, and making friends with stress. Each chapter starts out with, here's a dumb thing I did. And then maybe I'll tell you a client story, and then maybe I'll give you some suggestions. But each chapter at the end of it has what I call the adventure pages. And you can't answer these going into the book. You have to answer these from your own life. For instance, the chapter, when How Perfect Destroys Good. What are the questions? Where do you beat yourself up most often and why? Reimagine one of those times with the idea that good can triumph over perfect. What does it look like now? How would your life change if you stopped thinking perfection was the only correct response to a project or situation? Now, see, you can't find these in the book. You have to go into your own life. So as a result, if you do all of the questions at the end of each chapter, when you're done with that book, that's your personal manual. Your BFF could have bought the book the same day, started reading it the same day and finished it the same day. But because of her answers, it'll be totally different Very different from yours. I love that you really talk about how, again, from childhood, and this is, I've heard it from a thousand people, and we know it's true because I'm a big proponent of who are those they people. We are taught that someone else knows better. And after all, maybe who are we? That's right. How do we start to 
peel that one and and really you know people don't aren't comfortable looking in the mirror and be like yes i am i am a badass as those titles you know i am i simple practice part of it but i always say ask yourself the most important three questions what am i x about and x can be worried or frightened or angry or depressed why am i x about that because only you know why and then the magic question we never ask what do I think would happen if I stopped being X about that? We never ask ourselves, what happens if I stop? Not, I have to stop, but what happens if I stop? Because when we hear, I have to stop, I have to do this, I have to do that, it's just one more should. But when we look at what might happen without a push, then we see how we might change things the way we want. And we're more inclined to do that because remember, a should is somebody else telling you what you need to do. And you've got to get away from that. Now, there are certain times when that's important. I will fully admit, you know, I come from a completely medical family. My brother's been in research medicine for years. My genius, gorgeous nephew is a senior scientist in Boston. So, yes, I believe in the vaccine. I believe that the people who have worked on this for years know better than I do. I don't go to Dr. Google and I don't go to conspiracy theorists. On the other hand, when I knew what I wanted to do with my life, I adored my father. He kept wanting me to be a lawyer. I hate lawyers. So no, <laughs> I kept pushing and, you know, did my family for years think I was the crazy failure? Oh yeah. Do some of them still? Probably. But I've had this career for 20 years. I'm world famous. I'm in books, radio, television, and I have clients who say I've changed their lives. Who am I going to believe? Me, I think. Were you okay with, I'll say, and I'm using air quotes, accepting the role of, you say, crazy one or the one that didn't follow step? Whether I accepted it or not, it was me. Dad was a doctor, mom was a nurse, my brother was a med student. They would sit around at the table and discuss medicine at dinner. I could have tap danced on the table and recited Shakespeare. Nothing. Now, my father knew I was a writer. He and I both, words were our drug of choice. I mean, he wrote poetry that has been published. And toward the end of his life, he really did finally accept that, no, I wasn't crazy and I wasn't a failure. This is just who I am. Some of my relatives, to a greater or lesser degree, have accepted because they see the evidence and some people still think, nope, nope, we'll pat her on the head and make nice, but you know, we don't talk to her. We don't let our kids talk to her. Fine. Live and be well. What else can I do? It's so interesting because, you know, everyone is so individual and you do get that. We start off, I'll say perhaps in the box and in the box of beliefs of where your parents came from, that means, you know, the generation before that, where they came from. And it. I know for me, I have three kids, all very different, just as my sister and brother are all, we're individuals and nobody, I had, I always looked at them as the people that they were, not, well, you should be, well, this one's going to be, I'm like, try it all because- I was from definitely, I, I don't want to be just one thing. 
I don't want to do just one thing. There's so much out there. And that's why when I read, you know, when I just read a couple of the things that you do do, as you are a certified tarot master and, a, and an author. And a, I love that because that's what I am. And I think that's what everybody is. And there are a few that really want to be, but are stuck in, well, but I am. This role, um, this occupation, and they can't break free of that. I won't say what they need because that just, mm-hmm. yeah, that's mm-hmm. what we don't talk mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. What I have found is an amazing key. I talk about early in the book, and that's called getting clear on your passion, okay, on your purpose. I do a consultation called Create Your Sentence of Passion. And your sentence of passion is not who you are or what you do or even how you do it. It's your vapor trail. So that when you go skidding into heaven on bald tires and fumes in the tank and God hands you a beer and says, so you get to say, <laughs> I did this. Yeah, I love that. You say, I do so many things. In a sense, I only do one thing. And that is my sentence of passion, which is cross the bridge from fear to fearlessness and fly. When I can take somebody from point A to point B, when they thought they couldn't make it, whack them on their shoulders, say, here are your wings. You don't need a flight plan. Now get, I am living my bliss. And I do it with tarot. I do it with past lives. I do it with consultations. I do it with lectures. I do it with writing. So it's a lot of different tools, but it's like saying, wow, in her kitchen, she has a whisk and an air fryer and a blender. It's They all help me cook. So that's my key is I, I encourage people to fly. Love, love, love that. What I loved also in the book, and it was a metaphor that you used throughout and is, and I want to, if I remember correctly, at the end of each chapter was the telescope, look through your telescope. And that was part of getting clear and getting focus. Is it hazy? Clean it off. Tell me more about that whole process. The process of a telescope. What I loved about a telescope is you can see the stars. You can see things nobody else can see. And that's how you have to look at your life. Because I go through it. You have to decide to use your your telescope. Then you clean the lens. You focus it. You aim it. And you adjust the lens and adjusting the lens is things like cultivate simple, good habits, keep yourself in your surroundings, clean and comfortable, which, you know, in these days of murder hoarded bingo, yeah, I wore pants twice, but no, you get dressed to work. And again, you get dressed every day. You turn off the techno tempters. How many of us have gone the rabbit hole of social media and we look and, oh my God, it's three o'clock and I sat down at 930 this morning. You set your schedule, you keep your lists. I have found that that has been really, really important because all of us have gotten so fuzzy during this year of murder, hornet, bingo, because we have no routines. So we have to make our routines. We learn from other people with focused telescopes. We stay away from people who live in Neverland. Now, what's Neverland? Neverland is the people who say, no, it's never going to work. I don't think you should. Yeah. Yes. And so I say, in those cases, use my two magic phrases. Thank you for sharing. You may think that if you wish, then you move away. You find your tribe and you avoid the doom and gloom in the world. Look, it's very hard to avoid doom and gloom these days, whether it's politics, whether it's climate, whatever it is. 
find a way to do something about it if you can. Uh, what I'm doing is I have become an elder to an absolutely outstanding tarot apprentice reader that at 14 is better than most of the readers I know. And the elder and apprentice is a lifelong kind of thing. It's not just a teacher. And that's, as a matter of fact, is going to be the next book, Elder and Apprentice, for teenagers who want to work with metaphysics. Because frankly, Ula, my student, and I have read Teen Psychic and Teen Witch. And a lot of this, it's written by adults. It doesn't speak to kids. And fine, a 14-year-old who knows nothing, you're going to tell her to set up an altar with a scrying bowl where she can look in and see God knows what? No. So the book is being written with Ula actively so that it'll be how to move in metaphysics from a teen's perspective with an elder looking over her shoulder to help. That's our telescope, Ula's and mine, for right now. Did you hone in on your gift? Oh, and at what age? Because I, uh, uh, yeah. are we all born with something and then practice, practice, practice? We are, we are all born the same way I will give you my my 10 fingers analogy. We all had 10 fingers. Everybody can sit in front of a piano and pick out chopsticks. Some of us really like the instrument. And so we practice scales and we learn to read music and we spend time there. And one in 10 million is Elton John. Yes, anybody can do what I do. I say that often. As a matter of fact, I lost a reality show gig because I wouldn't say I am so amazing that I'm the only one to go to. I was on a reality show. We can talk about that later. You say what they want you to say. They have, yeah, the producers have an angle. Right. Exactly. But the 30-second elevator speech, because everyone wants to know, how'd you get started? When I was nine, I read a book called The Witch Family by Eleanor Estes. I said, this is cool. There's magic in the world. I want to go find it. 1973, I was a senior in high school working part-time at Spencer Gifts. They had the James Bond 007 tarot deck, and I bought it because we were all hippies then. Five years later, everyone else had moved on to roller skates and disco balls. I was still reading the cards because they fascinated me. So for 20 years, I read for friends, practicing, keeping a clear message, and my ego on the shelf. All of a sudden, in 1994, I could do hands-on healing and talk to dead people with no training. That's when the universe handed me my draft notice and said, greetings, you're working for us. <laughs> so I did it part time for another, what, eight years, maybe actress, author, inspirational speaker, legal assistant, video producer, graphic novel writer, executive recruiter. But when my husband and I watched the towers burn on 9-11, I looked at him and I said, I need to do the psychic work full time. People need to know there are other answers out there. He said, I believe in you, go do it. So for one more year, executive recruiter, 70 hours a week, psychic work evenings and weekends when I was sure I could make a living at it, closed the door on corporate. That was basically 20 years ago, and I've never looked back. How do you separate yourself from the reader? And do you protect? Do you uh, meditate to open? I'm terrible. All I know is... <laughs> I'm in service. The boss is up there. And whether okay. it's Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Muslim, or believe in Ralph the Wonder Dog, I don't care. My ego goes on the shelf. Okay. That so was I'm an absolutely clear. Yes. If I'm getting a message for someone and I'm seeing a plaid rutabaga on a fire engine, ego is going to think, are you nuts? You can't say that. But channel me says, 
I am being presented with a picture of a plaid rutabaga on a fire engine. And my client says, oh my God, that was the picture I drew from my deceased mom when I was four on her Valentine's Day card. And you know, we're trying to get her mom. Boom, there you are. Okay. The only time, there are two times really, that my ego sort of comes back in. Number one, if I'm counseling somebody who has had cancer or is dealing with cancer because I've done the cancer dance. And number two, if I'm reading on a relationship and the person says they are physically abused or emotionally abused, the wiki-woo turban comes off, the reverend collar goes on, and I give them some pastoral counseling about how to get out of an abusive situation. But for the rest of it, it's all them. I cannot get in the way of what their karma might be. I can say, here are your opportunities and how to grab them. Here's a tough stuff. Here's how to get through it or around it. Here's your toolbox. Go rock and roll. But I hand them the toolbox. I'm not the repairman. Amen. And that is what, well, we all want the easy answer. We all, And if it was easy, we would all do it. And we wouldn't be seeking spiritual guidance if, if only we just paid attention. And getting back to the book, because it is, you deliver the tools, as everyone can hear clearly, I mean, you're a wonderful storyteller, and then make yourself relatable, because here's what I did. I might have screwed up during this one, not my, not my finest moment, but okay, this is how, and here's my takeaway, as long as I didn't repeat it, maybe it took me two or three times to learn, but eventually I'm going to get it. And then the home, the homework, then the adventure, as you say, because there's two different words and I shouldn't have said homework because then that's work versus the adventure. You get to write your story. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because when we know what our original story is, we know what we want to change it into. Yeah. The power of the pen and the thought. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Clarity for me is a really big thing. It's, I get very, uh, I'm like a land shark. I'm just like, everything is, give me anything glittery and, oh, I want to, yeah, I want to do this, 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 and this. You're a magpie. You like shiny things. I love sh- shiny. Oh my goodness. And I'm a big believer in myself. Like I can do everything. Of course I can do that. And nine times out of 10, when I'm in the middle of trying something new, which clearly is out of my level of expertise, I'll say, even at the time or even educate, I'll be, wow, this was uh, not not my finest decision here. (laughs) Going guns blazing. And sometimes there's some retreat. Sometimes there's some surrender. It's just how do you, and is focus and clarity the same? Let's start there. Focus brings you clarity, okay? You focus your telescope to make the stars clear. If you don't focus your telescope, they're all fuzzy. You don't know what you're looking at. That makes so much sense. That just like so spoke to me for always my dilemma of, oh, let me just stay this and let me just do that. So when people are working on their adventure. They've, they've had their, 
what they've just listened. Well, I I did the uh, audible, but there were so many great gems and takeaways. I I ordered the book because now I have to read and write and hold it in my hand and and really see those words. There was the three legged stool of clarity, which I definitely enjoyed. Tell more, please. Okay. The three-legged stool of clarity is getting clear on your purpose, which you've discussed, getting clear in relationships and getting clear with spirit. You got those three, then you can sit still and focus that telescope. Getting clear in relationships doesn't mean it's all going to be perfect. It just won't. But there are certain things that I have discovered in my relationship with my husband. I mean, is he my first marriage? No, but he's the right one. When we got married in 2002, we were in our late forties. We thought, great, we have so much time. Then a year and a half later, I got my third dance with breast cancer. It was second primary danger clock back to zero, but the doctor said, okay, three strikes are out. We're taking the rack, we're taking the ovaries, and you're going from this Dolly Parton figure to a fat fire plug with permanent side effects and a lot of internal damage in three weeks, suck it up. You know, I didn't know if if he'd even stay, but it's where the examined life comes in. And did I go home and cry for 24 hours? Yes. But then I said, all right, I know three rules. I have to find three reasons to be okay with it. First one was you don't have them. You can't get cancer there. Second one was they're not going to get slammed in the refrigerator door at the doctor's every year. Every woman listening knows what I'm talking about. Yes, indeed. Implants, great. I'll be perky till I'm 93. That kind of an attitude meant I was able to go into Mass General, have the mastectomy and reconstruction, walked out in three days, shopped for a bathing suit in five. I had some kind of strength. I married the right guy, which I didn't know as well until he looked at me, got very quiet and he said, am I going to miss some? Oh yeah, they were gorgeous, but I married you, not them. The marriage is nothing, nothing like we thought it was going to be. It's been much harder, but the 19th of October was our 19th anniversary. We've been together for 21 years and it's because of what I write in this book. You have to talk to each other. When you have a problem, you have to make it about the challenge, not personal sniping. You know, you should say, my clothing is ending up on the floor. Can we figure out a way for me to have more closet space? Not, you're a closet pig. (laughs) Do versus act uh, is like fix versus listen. Um, When he was coming home and from a very hard day at the museum because he worked for two bosses the local board of supervisors and the historical society. Uh, if he was really stomping and, and railing, I'd say, are you yelling to me or at me? That to one me was key. Means, mm. Yes. He needed to decompress. And I just held space at me. Stop yelling. Let's talk. Fix versus listen. Most women know their guy wants to fix things for us. And, but sometimes we just need to talk. So when I would start stomping around the house, Carl would say to me, do you want me to try to fix this or just listen? If I said, just listen, he'd hold space. If I said, yes, help me fix it, then I would take his suggestions. But when a guy keeps trying to say, well, what about this? Well, did you think about that? And you haven't asked them to fix it. It feels that, like they're negating what you're feeling and telling you you're kind of stupid for not 
thinking about those options. Right. 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 And they completely derail things. Once they learn, yes, sometimes your different perspective is so valuable, but sometimes by talking out loud, we figure things out. Another rule is the 60-60. Each partner goes a little bit more than halfway and the extra 10% locks it in for the tough times. And yet, I always say, you first, then the relationship. Because if you don't give to yourself first, and then you're giving to everyone else, you drink from an empty cup, and you have nothing to sustain you, and eventually nothing to give them. So and that's you need why you to don't... say that one more time, because I'm such a proponent about that. And I love how you let you first. When you make it clear to your family that you're a priority too, they will accept when you say no. It's not a rejection, but a point of self-care. And I don't know how many women say they don't know how to say no, they're afraid to, blah, blah, blah. And of course, all the psychologists and everybody else says, oh, well, you have to learn to say no, blah, blah, blah. Uh -uh. That's when I pull out the postcards I had made up for them. And I say, I'm giving you a five-word mantra. No is a fabulous idea. (laughs) On the back of the postcard, I've written the tale of Sid, Moses' second cousin, explain to them why they need to learn to say no. And I give them the postcard and I say, put it on the fridge. No is the fabulous idea. Love. Laughter makes them lower their shields and the information gets in. That's on the refrigerator. It's a constant, friendly, loving reminder. No is okay. Then, you know, it's don't sublimate your needs. Don't say you'll always take the last piece of cake if you don't want to. And the other one is give the relationship the time it requires. You cannot have a relationship work if there's no time. I mean, when I was on the road, it was 45 weekends a year, 50,000 miles on the car. My nickname was the Travel Channel. And Carl was working at the Fort Museum, night meetings. We carved out Wednesday night and Wednesday night was date night. I would not take clients. He would not do night meetings. And even if it was just pizza and a Star Trek DVD, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Each other and said, how you doing? Let's talk. And that is one of the reasons why this marriage is still strong 21 years in. And yet they seem so simple. I'm 37 years. God only knows how long. It's a lifetime. But not easy. Nope, not easy at all. Um, definitely laughing a lot more uh, lately. Why not? But there are, and you can really, and I think it helped that most of our time in the early, especially early in the marriage, you know, we didn't have cell phones. So it was talk to you face to face, yell, perhaps, however we communicate. A lot of times, especially early on, we would uh, write letters to each other when there was when there was a fight. Easier to what I find is get your thought out across uninterrupted, and then that other person knows kind of where you're coming from. But I love the sixty sixty because so many times, again, guilty as women, where you're like. I'm I'm doing uh, scorekeeping, start there. I'm doing all of this and I'm getting this back. But if it's from the beginning, you know what the parameters are. 
And 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 then you want to almost question yourself, like, hey, am I giving 60? Let, let me step my game up here because this guy's really showing up. And where am I? It's such a great little test to have in there. And if you don't feel like you can give 60-60, you need to ask yourself why and maybe have that come to Jesus meeting with your husband or your spouse. Also, very, very valid point. It's not easy, but it's worth it. Still, you know, this guy, this guy, I know my guy makes me laugh every day still. So uh, that's what one of the reasons I picked him for sure. So I also want to talk about it. This all sounds almost easy. And yet, and yet life is life and things can get messy or things can get a little messy when perhaps one person is learning and adding to their toolbox and growing, I'll say. Um, So how does that, how do we work through mess? Nobody likes to get dirty. You're going to be out of your comfort zone. What do you, what are some tools we can use? Realize that being vulnerable, as scary as it is, is the only way to make a relationship work. Uh, Pina Chodron, who was a Buddhist nun and brilliant, talks about that soft place inside. Because most people who say, well, I just can't get close to anybody, they're terrified of that. You know, they have a holographic heart, but theirs is hidden away somewhere. So realize nobody gets it right 100% of the time. You will stumble, but that's part of life. If you were perfect, you would not be down here in a crazy incarnation. You simply wouldn't. So please be easy on yourself for that. It's it's a day-by-day thing. There are days that Carl and I just can barely speak to each other because we're human. Um, I've, you know, I'm stuck on a portion of my book. I've had idiotic clients. Um, I've had people stand me up. Um, I had an anti-vaxxer hassle me at the grocery store for wearing a mask. These things happen. When he would come home from the fort, because we live in a tiny county where everybody knows everybody else, having to juggle the people on the board of supervisors and the historical, I mean, they could pepper him with unfair accusations and he had to make nice. Well, who did he have to blow out to but me? And that, those were rough times, but they're not all the time. So don't expect it's going to be sunshine and roses on a Hallmark movie every single day. As my old friend Rick used to say, some days you get chickens and some days all you got is feathers. Love that. <laughs> and then my favorite uh, topic is perfection. And so I... I so overrated. And I don't even know like when it became so prevalent and I'm sure social media had a lot to do with it, or has it just always been there? Uh, And how do we give ourselves the grace to again, say, you know what? I'm good. The only one perfect is God. You ain't God, kids. You ain't never God. <laughs> I think a lot of it is it's self-help books. If I do this, will I be perfect? Will people like me? Will I be exactly right? 
the chapter about when perfect destroys good is the most personal one in there because I talk about my parents, my stepmother, my grandmother, not to, you know, not to spoil, but um, my parents had a truly disastrous marriage, uh, and they, but they stayed married for 38 years until my mother died of a heart attack at age 59. And when dad remarried, my stepmother was totally different from my mother. She was wonderful. Part of it was because my grandmother did not want my father marrying my mother and so had a vendetta against her her entire life. My mother was never do anything right. That's horrible. Which is why my mother became an alcoholic, cross-addicted with barbiturates. Uh, My grandmother died at age 84. 86 from congestive heart failure. And my mother died six weeks later at 59. She never even had a chance to see who she would be without always being told she wasn't good enough. My mother was jealous of me because I had this Dolly Parton figure and I had in, look, my father literally was a genius. And my brother and I both inherited his very high IQ and and his massive creativity and my mother felt isolated in inadequacy. Shirley, on the other hand, adored my father's brilliance, adored it in both myself and my brother. And so we didn't have to be perfect. We were splendid people for Shirley, just as we stood. So for the first time in my life, I was enough being me. Shirley even got what I do. When she died in 2009, uh, we held a memorial at the house and we all told Shirley stories. And I told her that the story, when my father and Shirley were married, they had little purple stars all over the house. And of course they were all cleaned out when dad died, but every 18 months there'd be this little purple star in the middle of the living room floor, which could not have been there. And I would always get a call from Shirley in her breathy voice going, I found a star do you think it could be your father? And I would say, of course, Shirley, he loved you. And she'd say, I thought so. And at the end of the the memorial, one little guy stood up and none of us really knew him, but he came to the front and said, "Uh, uh, my my name is Lou and you don't know me, but I live in in back of Shirley's house. And I looked out the window today and I found out it was, a memorial and she had died in February. This was June, but that doesn't make any sense because about six weeks ago, I looked out my window and I saw Shirley in the garden. She was, you know, with her robe on and smoking a cigarette. And I went down and I said, Hey, Shirley, are you okay? She looked at me and she smiled, but she didn't say anything. I said, well, you know that you can call on us if you need anything. And she nodded and smiled again, but she didn't say anything. And I went back into the house and now you tell me she's been dead for months, but I know what I saw right there. Shirley gave the gift of saying to my family, she's not crazy. She knows what she's doing. You know, that was that was one last glorious gift from Shirley. That was oh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Shirley knew that it was good enough to be good, not perfect. That is again, that that's the tattoo. That's that's the words to live by. It's you know, we all have, we definitely all have our gift, our genius. And some people like you are very fortunate to 
find it, tap into it? And is it work that you, you, you said earlier, I work six days a week. I did a, is it, do you wake up like, oh, I got to go another day? No, absolutely I not. get you, to get up in the morning. I don't have to. I heard that word. I heard it. And that's, that makes all of the difference is when you do get to do the things that really fill you. Stress. Let's parlay into that. There's two sides. That means I I'm I always say, you know, stress is it's it's overrated. I would rather just let things roll off of me. Can it be good? Oh, sure. Laurence Olivier, the world famous actor, was always stressed before he went on stage. In fact, I think he often threw up. But what's good stress or you stress, as they call it? It's when you're getting ready to go on stage. It's when I am uh, about to do a podcast. It is when you are about to take a, a test that you know you can ace. It's when you're in the starting block for a race. That's good stress. That's when you're pumped. Bad stress is when it gets chronic. And um, I'll, I'll share some of the lists that I've got of when you know it's bad stress. When deadlines feel like you're never going to meet them and you always say yes when you should be saying no. When you second guess yourself and others all the time, basically you think you're 30 years old, but you're really 60 because you double think everything. When you obsess over situations, when you're constantly anxious or depressed, that's chronic stress. Now there's hyper stress and hypo stress. Hyper stress is the stress version of the straw that broke the camel's back uh, and we break. But hypo stress is what a lot of us are subjected to because of the pandemic. We can't find anything to settle on. Nothing interests us. Boredom is overwhelming. We can't be motivated because everything that we know about ourselves and our schedule, it's out the window. Okay. So those are two examples of bad stress, but there are ways to beat those stresses. And, you know, there are lots of books to tell you how to deal with stress and meditate and get up and do something different. So, so is there some of that in the book? Yes. But the two particular kind of stresses that I talk about are stress as the shot across the bow and stress as mission creep. And stress as the shot across the bow is really one of the funniest stories in there. There's a wonderful bakery called the Black Cat in Sharon Springs. And I love Tony Dow. He's the owner. And pre-COVID, he would be packed to the gunnels with people. And very often, I'd be reading for a weekend. I'd be reading upstairs. Well, this was uh, like the garden party or harvest festival. And Sharon Springs was crawling with people. So I was reading, 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 reading. I hadn't eaten that, that morning. Setting up was too important. But I needed to eat, so I grabbed a couple of Tony's raspberry bars. Now, baby, these things are raspberry heaven, but they are so much sugar and so much fat. So I downed two. 20 minutes later, my heart is hammering. I'm sweating. And I'm thinking, what's going wrong? Am I having a heart attack? Well, I quickly looked it up. Too much sugar can cause all of this. So that was the shot across the bow for me. Boom. Kiddo, you cannot handle that much sugar. And so I, in that moment, I chose to totally change how I see sweet stuff and dessert. You know, I go to fruit rather than crud. When my husband and I, even for our anniversary, we went out, we ordered one piece of key lime pie with two forks. 
And it, you know, one or two bites for me was enough. So I explained that, look at the times when you've collapsed. That's the shot across the bow that you need to make corrections. Okay. Then there is mission creep. And that's when the example I use is a woman loves knitting and she made her friend baby clothes. And the friend said, wow, these are great. Could you make some for our you know, cat rescue? And then someone saw them at the cat rescue and said, could you make them for our NPR pledge drive? And by the way, would you please make them with this kind of organic wool? And this is this and this and this and this. To the point where what she used to do for relaxation was now just one more stress-filled obligation. And she finished all of that and she never went back to knitting. She had ruined it for herself. That's why mission creep is something you've got to watch. And Which leads no. to burnout, right? That's exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And bitterness. Yep. The resentment when it's what starts out as, you know, a place of love or what have you, and then quickly parlays into, oh, resentment. And yes. right. Yeah. In so many, in so many other ways. All right. So I just want to keep moving. What do you want to, when... What do you want to say to someone who's going to open the book? Like what, what words are, what are they going to get from this experience? Take only what works for you and toss the rest. I'm not, nobody died and made me God. I have loved writing the book. If any of it is resonant for you, fabulous. It's one of the reasons why this book of my three, I uh, did as an audiobook because it's nonfiction. And I have a very strong belief that if the author has any kind of voice at all, and you hear them read the words to you that they have such passion about, it will make even more of an impression. You know, a book like Outlander, that's fiction. Anybody can read that if they have a good narrator's voice. It doesn't have to be the author, but a nonfiction book, that's my heart on the page. Let me tell you. And like I said, after listening to it, I had, I'm like, I got to, I got to read There's too many. I couldn't, I couldn't keep up writing. I kept stopping and writing. And what did she say again? Go back. I'm like, just order the book, Stephanie. What are you doing? It was uh, truly, truly enlightening and fun and just fun to listen to that dropped so many truth bombs. It was, uh, I'm, I'm sure everybody is going to enjoy it. So with all of that said, we've got a lot of places where we can find you and, but start with, let's start with the book and then work our way to your website and everything they're going to find there. My three books are all on Amazon. They are all paperback and Kindle. The first two books, Life Closet and Psychic Yellow Brick Road, come from me. You've Got the Magic Who Needs a Genie is print on demand because it's much more of a niche book. It's there for people who want to be professional intuitives or work the metaphysical or spiritual expo circuit. The only one that is an audiobook, unfortunately, is Life Closet because it's expensive to do audiobooks. So that's where they are. If you want to work with me, readings, consultations, whatever, you go to my website, corbymitlide.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, 
Pinterest, LinkedIn. YouTube has lots of videos um, that I've done, some meditations, things about how to read, spiritual time management. But if you want to work with me on a regular basis, then I recommend Patreon. Patreon is, it's almost like a subscription service where if you just want to say, yeah, Corby, I love you. It's a buck a month. If you want to do 25 a month, then you will have an hour with me every month with the tribe. Let's say there are eight of you at, uh, at that, then I do one hour on Zoom once a month. And if you have a question, I'll do a reading. But if somebody else is a reader, you might get a reading from them. We discuss things in the world. We try new meditations. It's a real chance to have good quality time with me. So that's what I do. That sounds wonderful. And we're going to put all of these links in the show notes. And thank you. This I could keep going and I know I want to do a follow-up. I want to read at least one more because I am just exploring. I am, I love your delivery. I love your read and it just breaks it down and just makes it so simple where so much that used to be, I'll say cloudy, just becomes so clear. Thank you. Those kind, kind words. So thank you again for your time. And everybody, I know we're going to get comments. Everybody run to those links and get these books. I'm telling you, it is so going to be worth it. Another week, appreciate, listen to us anywhere that you're going to listen to your pods on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeart. Reviews, rate, leave a comment, website, joyfoundhere.com. And until the next time, be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Joy Found Here podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please share it with a friend. And of course, if you haven't already done so, subscribe, rate and review the show on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to head over to joyfoundhere.com for any questions, comments and feedback. Until next week, keep your head up and your crown straight. You've got this.